back when I was a kid. We didn't have in the corner, back by the wood pile, we just had suck. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous people and we see what survives the fire. And at the end of the podcast, I will reveal the source of the quotes. So let's get into it. The first quote is After his release from jail for civil disobedience, not paying his taxes he felt was going to keep slavery legally protected, the children of Concord had brightened Henry's mood by urging him to join a huckleberry hunt. Huckleberrying was one of Henry's value pastimes, and his skill at locating fruit-laden bushes made him a favorite with children. And should a child stumble spilling berries, Henry would kneel by the weeping child and explain that if children did not stumble, then berries would never scatter and grow into new bushes. I just met a woman who lost 70 pounds, and you know she's very successful financially, and now she advocates uh, hiking. For overweight people mm-hmm. and she's starting a blog and um, she stumbled in her life you know she became she was very unhealthy for a while and she still has some weight to go but you know she's doing something about it and through her struggles she's made something positive out of it well she's so, got a new life out of it yeah a new life for herself and she gets to explore she's doing the Adirondack Trail mm-hmm. she's leaving her business for seven months and and uh, she does all sorts of non-profit type of hiking events uh, she organizes to bring awareness to certain things. So she probably never would have had that had she not had a weight problem. Exactly. Again, after his release from jail for civil disobedience not paying his taxes he felt was going to keep slavery legally protected, the children of Concord had brightened Henry's mood by urging him to join a huckleberry hunt. Huckleberrying was one of Henry's value pastimes, and his skill at locating fruit-laden bushes made him a favorite with children. And should a child stumble spilling berries, Henry would kneel by the weeping child and explain that if children did not stumble, then berries would never scatter and grow into new bushes. Like, I see so many young kids, like, going the wrong direction, and... You know, I see all these politicians like, oh, look at me. I'm like, awesome. I follow all the laws. I've never been arrested. I pay my taxes. I do this. I do that. But do you really even try to nurture a person? Even though Henry broke the law, he still had compassion. And nurtured people. And nurtured people. Well, back to politicians. Uh Real change, I think, if you want to help other people, you you have to invest a lot of time and like you say, nurturing, whereas politicians' prescription for everything is to throw money at it. And of course, it's never their money. Right. It's Henry's money. And it doesn't help. No. A lot of times, yeah. I guess we can totally twist this statement by saying, you know, we pay taxes. And, like, for example, one of the biggest things is we pay taxes for schools, for our kids to go to school. And our schools are a joke. Our school system is a joke. I mean... They were better when we paid less taxes. Yeah. Somehow it's, you know... um, But at least Henry's coming out and trying to nurture and teach the children. Mm. And, you know, we would not consider Henry a good person because he has violated a law. 
But we never bothered to look at his and what he does out there. And I mean, one of the big things is if you want to teach a boy to fish, what is it? Oh, if you give a man a fish he eats for a day, teach him how to fish he eats forever. Right. You know, we don't really get involved in other people's lives. I mean, we just kind of stay away. And, you know, then we say, well, you know, I pay my taxes. I pay my dues. Mm -hmm. I don't think I should have to volunteer. I don't think I should have to mentor Mm -hmm. or whatever. But in the reality, I mean, we pay, we pay our taxes, and then, I mean, the school system's horrible, and then you have to pay for your kids to go to private school, to get it, you or know, just to make sure that they stay alive. You know, you take in a lot of people. You, you, I think you've tried to nurture a lot of people, myself included. You know, I might have been pretty close to homeless if you hadn't. Uh, and sometimes it works out well, I think, and people get on their feet after you've helped them. But some people, not so much. Are you going to keep trying that? Because I know sometimes you, you say you're giving it up. <laughs> I think I'm going to give it up for a while. Because the last incident didn't go too good? No. Well, I say that by the end of the week I'll have some. you have another homeless person yeah, in your house. <laughs> no. I mean, I think the problem is, is I try to see the good in everybody and try to be compassionate towards everybody. But, you know, some of the times, like, the people that I've been compassionate to are, like, so not compassionate back. And they're the ones that have done the worst, you know, that are the worst. Mm -hmm. But so for me, like, I haven't paid my taxes this year, so I'll probably go to jail, but I've let people live with me. And also can kind of go with, you know, criminals are come in all shapes and sizes. You know, once you've been to jail, once you've, you know, people stay away from you. People don't like you. Uh, People judge you. Sure. Uh, But in this case, he had nurturing information to provide Mm -hmm. for the, or a good lesson for kids. Yeah. Of course, children who want to go berry picking, maybe a little different than criminals, they're easier to nurture. You've had the full gamut, I think, in your house. Now we're just in taking dogs, because Leah... Leah's goal is to be, when she turns a thousand years old, she wants to have a thousand pets. Really? Yeah. That's what she said? Yeah. I told her that she should just kind of wait a little bit and start her collection at a hundred years old. She sort of said, well, maybe when I'm 12, can I get a guinea pig? (laughs) So, I don't know. Didn't you have one in here? We just have the class guinea pig. The what pig? The, cl- the class guinea pig. Oh, the class guinea pig. Yeah, her classroom. Is it still alive? Yeah. Okay. Has it moved around in a while? Yeah, it's in her classroom. I mean, it's... Oh, is he, it's not it's here no more? School. Yeah, no. Oh, okay. And when he's here, he and Chico apparently have been good. Good friends. She's huh? a girl. Oh, a they're dating? Yeah, and while she was here, the guinea pig was here. Chico would put his paws in, and she mm. put his paws on top really? of his. Really? I was like, what is going on? And Chico would just, like, lay there with his head next to the crate. Again, after his release from jail for civil disobedience, not paying his taxes he felt was going to keep slavery legally protected, the children of Concord had brightened Henry's mood by urging him to join a huckleberry hunt. 
Huckleberrying was one of Henry's value pastimes, and his skill at locating fruit-laden bushes made him a favorite with children. And should a child stumble spilling berries, Henry would kneel by the weeping child and explain that if children did not stumble, then berries would never scatter and grow into new bushes. What happens all the time with my partner? They can find positive in anything, and he typically is very good at it to where it's really true. Yeah, yesterday, his one of his favorite employees tells me just personally that he's looking for another job. You know, again, it's gossipy, so I didn't want to go to him with it, and I did because he always has this different perspective on it. And he said, well, it would be good for him because he's worked for me for a long time and he's afraid to step into management. So having going somewhere else, he's going to see the money that you can make here and the structure that we have here and his ability to bend it and work with it and mold it. And I'll probably want to come back and be considering management again. Wow. And like, so I just told you, your favorite guy's going to quit. And <laughs> you turned it into, not only is he going to come back, but he's going to be a manager, which is what <laughs> I've been wanting for years. I'm like, just damn, you're good. <laughs> and I, I honestly, I have drank in the poison. I, I believe him. Uh -huh. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. When was the last time you got into a fight someone and then... After you guys made up. Oh, felt. gosh. So. <laughs> like this morning. <laughs> um, there's this one bully. She bullied me and all this stuff at the beginning, in the beginning of the year. And then we became friends again. And then she would start up something again. And she just goes on and off with me. And. You forgive her every time? No. Not every time? Not. I. She's tried like four times now. To be my friend again and i just say no i forgived her four times and she just keeps on turning her back on me and she actually um told my best friend or some of my good friends that i didn't like them anymore and she started causing fights and i just didn't like that because she would tell my friend that i didn't like her anymore which i wouldn't say that about my best friend because i love her do you forgive her and you don't want to be her friend I don't forgive her. She's just done it to me four times, and I just don't like that, so I'm not going to forgive her ever. Ever? Again. Yeah. Like even you, when you're on your deathbed, when you're 80 years old, you're not going to forgive her? I don't want to forgive her. I mean, after all she's done to me. Right. It doesn't mean you have to be her friend again. Yeah, true. But I still don't forgive her at this point. Wow. That's harsh. She's been rude to my mom and dad, too. Like, she said rude things to my uh -huh. mom and dad on a text message because my mom and dad asked her to please stop because she was calling me a loser and an idiot and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so my mom and dad said something to her, and she was just really rude back to them. Have you met her parents? Yes. What are they like? They're nice. Like. Well, how'd that happen? I don't know. I thought they were nice people, and... It all started when I went over to her house on my birthday because I had this birthday sleepover and my best friend had a game that day. And then we were like having so much fun and she asked her mom if I could go to her house and her mom said yes. Their neighbor had this birthday party and so we went to it and she was taking <laughs> pictures and I photobombed it and she slapped me in the face. Whoa! So my aunt is next door neighbors to the people that had the party. So I just went over to my aunt's house and I just kind of hung out there till my parents came and picked me wow. up. Wow, so that's where it began and it just kept getting worse. worse. Yeah. Well, I understand. It, it, you can't be friends with everybody, but I do hope you can forgive her one day. You feel better. It's making you feel old. I see gray hair is coming out of your head <laughs> and hair growing out of your ears. <laughs>
again. After his release from jail for civil disobedience, not paying his taxes he felt was going to keep slavery legally protected, the children of Concord had brightened Henry's mood by urging him to join a huckleberry hunt. Huckleberrying was one of Henry's value pastimes, and his skill at locating fruit-laden bushes made him a favorite of children. And should a child stumble spilling berries, Henry would kneel by the weeping child and explain that if children did not stumble, then berries would never scatter and grow into new bushes. I think that what he means is that you learn by your experience and that you learn through experimentation. And as an educator, I believe that 100%. And I believe that children should be given as much experience as possible, and that includes not doing everything right every time and then that's part of the growth process and the learning process. Well I'll just use as an example children playing with blocks and they're all intent, I'm talking about young children, preschool age children, on building the highest structure that they can build. They all do it. They all do it and they all fall down. The structures. <laughs> and part of the process... Don't you teach engineering? Of figuring your... out... That's part of the process, uh-huh. is figuring out how they do it different the second time around so as not to tumble the blocks, not to spill the berries. So you've you know, seen so them figure it out, like how to build a taller Absolutely. Building. Really? Absolutely. Huh. And if I tell them, they don't learn. Right. But if I let them do it over and over and over again, and they figure it out for themselves, so you're not you're not one of these teachers that you kind of hear about that they try to protect uh, children from failure or no okay no okay no do you have you worked with folks like that as an educator of young children I have not worked with folks like that as a parent have I seen people who parent that way uh-huh. yes. Yes. You've have you have grown children now. Obviously, you could see how those kids turned out. Yes. Some some of them that you were thinking about that the parents uh, told them they were always winners, even though they they didn't succeed, or they, you know. You always get a trophy. Yeah. <laughs> get for just showing up. Right. Yeah. Right. Good. And this goes back to the quote as well. You don't focus on the failures. You focus on the successes. So you don't focus on the fact that they've spilled the berries. You focus on the fact that this is going to allow new things to grow. Mm -hmm. So that tends to be my uh, educational philosophy as well as my parenting. But I'm going back to, you said that you saw some parents that did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, I see them every day. Parents who don't let their children do for themselves that in the end, I think they have a harder time adapting and a harder time accepting their losses, their failures, their inability to accomplish a task or mm. whatever. Because, and I think it's a disservice to a child to not let them experience that. You don't have to create it. You don't have to set them up for failure just to get them to experience it, but yet you can't protect them from it and jump in there and do it 
when you're tempted to. It's part of the process. Next quote. Julio Antonio resisted against the Baptista regime and then later protested Castro's tyranny. During a recess for his trial, Antonio returned to his cell and asked one of his cellmates, quote, do me a favor, open that can of pears you've been saving and give me a glass of milk. That's the last thing I'll ever eat since tonight I'll be far away from here, close to God, unquote. At 2 p.m. he was led away and at 9 p.m. that night the sound of a motor was heard. Total silence fell. It was the truck carrying the coffin for the corpse. Before they tied Antonio to the wooden stake, he shook hands with each one of the soldiers in the firing squad and told them that he forgave them. I think people in general can be more heroic when their backs are against the wall. It's uh, in your day-to-day -day life where uh, the heroics kind of fall short. Um, we all like to think we have these grand ideals of what we would do in different scenarios and situations, but uh, in the reality, we go day in, day out, usually in some sort of level of comfort. Um, it's not true for everyone. And for the rest of the world as a whole, it's probably less true for it the is, populace. As, it's grim. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of stuff that resonates in that story. You know, the fascism that Cuba still faces to this day, and I can only imagine it was even worse than uh, as the revolution was taking hold, is uh, they were trying to build a perfect society. They were trying to build a utopia. And utopias, the ideals of utopias are usually built in rivers of blood. You know, there's you either conform to it or you're removed from it, either through death or you know, exile. Um, there's not a whole lot you can say about the story. The story speaks for itself. It's just a sad reflection on what can happen when ideals become a grounds for life or death. Again, Julio Antonio resisted against the Baptista regime and then later protested Castro's tyranny. During a recess for his trial, Antonio returned to his cell and asked one of his cellmates, quote, Do me a favor, open that can of pears you've been saving and give me a glass of milk. That's the last thing I'll ever eat since tonight I'll be far away from here, close to God, unquote. At 2 p.m. he was led away and at 9 p.m. that night the sound of a motor was heard. Total silence fell. It was the truck carrying the coffin for the corpse. Before they tied Antonio to the wooden stake, he shook hands with each one of the soldiers in the firing squad and told them that he forgave them. Uh, that kind of reminds you of how Christ forgave his, mm. the people that persecuted him and was going to kill. In fact, he stated that, mm. forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. So, and that, I think that man was truly a good man. That would be hard to go and teach one. And I don't know, but it might have done something for each one of those men. Of course, they were following orders, but still, it might have done something to their heart. Mm -hmm. Each one you spoke to and stood face to face. Mm -hmm. And you looked them right in the eye and told them, mm -hmm. I forgive you. Mm -hmm. And knowing minutes later they would be one on the firing squad, mm -hmm. then you can put yourself in the position of the ones on the firing squad. It would just have to make them feel 
so humble in a way, knowing mm -hmm. that they had to follow orders, but the one they were, I don't know. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you cry. I can see the beauty, and I can see that, that I just have to, he was like Jesus, mm -hmm. forgiving. Julio Antonio resisted against the Baptista regime and then later protested Castro's tyranny. During a recess for his trial, Antonio returned to his cell and asked one of his cellmates, quote, do me a favor, open that can of pears you've been saving and give me a glass of milk. That's the last thing I'll ever eat since tonight I'll be far away from here, close to God, unquote. At 2 p.m. he was led away and at 9 p.m. that night the sound of a motor was heard. Total silence fell. It was the truck carrying the coffin for the corpse. Before they tied Antonio to the wooden stake, he shook hands with each one of the soldiers in the firing squad and told them that he forgave them. It makes me think about Jesus immediately. How does the story of both Jesus and the Cuban man compare with maybe your own history or maybe a Chinese way of thinking? That's a good question. In my opinion and in my mind, we seldom learn to forgive and tolerance. In Chinese culture, we learn a lot about how to fight with others, how to beat them, how to make deals with them. And in Qing Dynasty, there are four great and famous literature books. Three of them just teach people how to fight enemies. The books seldom teach people how to forgive or love the enemies and so we seldom learn how to forgive our enemies. Do you feel like in your culture that forgiveness is a sign of weakness? It's very weak. Oh. I think that's one different compared to Western culture and a tolerance and a forgiveness in Western culture is very strong but in China it's just middle. We keep, keep in the middle. For example, if somebody treats me very bad, I will just stay there, not to curse him, and not to beat him, just to... Oh, like ignore him? Yeah, ignore him. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's better than the old times when it was all about revenge. Yeah. In the, in the old China times, and maybe even in Western culture, you know, if you killed my father, I would go kill your father and you. <laughs> right. How about in Western culture, you think? Maybe a long time ago, but definitely yeah. Christianity changed the culture. You just remind me uh, in Chinese culture, if a new dynasty just built, the new emperor will arrest the last emperor and his family, all of his family members, and will kill them. Well, let me ask you one more question about this story. Okay. The story took place in Cuba with, you know, Castro and the, the communist revolution. Your own country, millions of people were, you know, murdered the same way. Yeah, sure. Under the CCP controls after 1949, there was a, a movement to kill the Christians the first movement, and there are a lot, a lot of Christians were persecuted, you know, by the 
policeman, one pastor whose name is Wang Mingdao. He was arrested by the policeman during the Cultural Revolution. He and his wife were sent to the jail, and the people treated them very bad. The policeman promised him if he committed to not to believe Jesus, and he will released. In first years, he denied to、uh, give up his belief, and he and his wife were treated very bad in the jail.、Mm-hmm. They can't bear it, and so finally, and denied, and they were released. But when he and his wife were released, and、uh, when they just arrived at him, he thinks、uh, he made mistakes. So he went back to the jail and told the policeman, "I will not deny my belief." So he and his wife were sent in the jail again. And after the Cultural Revolution, you know, Wang Mingdao is is he's very popular among the Christians, among among the Chinese Christians. And Deng Xiaoping went to America for visiting. You know, Jimmy Carter invited him to to the office, and Jimmy Carter gave Deng Xiaoping a, a list of names. And you need to release the people on the list,、mm-hmm. and one people is Wang Mingdao. He was released after 1978. That's great. Yeah. Again, Julio Antonio resisted against the Baptista regime and then later protested Castro's tyranny. During a recess for his trial, Antonio returned to his cell and asked one of his cellmates, "Quote: Do me a favor. Open that can of pears you've been saving and give me a glass of milk. That's the last thing I'll ever eat since tonight I'll be far away from here, close to God." Unquote. At 2 p.m. he was led away, and at 9 p.m. that night the sound of a motor was heard. Total silence fell. It was the truck carrying the coffin for the corpse. Before they tied Antonio to the wooden stake, he shook hands with each one of the soldiers in the firing squad and told them that he forgave them. In one hand, like they'll never forget him, and I think that was probably his point. You know, he he fought right to the end,、mm-hmm. and it's almost like being a badass ghost. You know what I mean? <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, because you think he wanted to haunt them? No, it haunts them. Yeah. You know, like. They're following orders, you know, blah blah blah. They can have all that, or they really believe in the regime. They'll never forget him. He wasn't a coward, you know. He's a gentleman. He had sagua fear, you know,、uh-huh. and love and war. I know it's impossible to anticipate that feeling, but if you were in that situation, I think we all aspire. We think, hey, I would like to be like that guy. But can you guess enough about yourself to know what, what you might do in that situation if you knew like this is it? You know, I think that's a perfect example. That's why you read that story. I mean, like he had a lot of time. Let's face it, to face. Sure, he, yeah, he, he was, was in the cell. Yeah, know, he just、time. had to basically just go through the motions、uh-huh. of the fake trial to get to the, you know. You Do know. you feel like that? We're you know, there's not much really that separates us from this guy. This guy just knew his time, like it was appointed by the by the Castro regime. But whereas we're not sure when our time is, but it, it could be later today, or it could be years from now. I think that's part of being an adult is really, you know, reconciling like death and dying. You know, as we get older, our parents are getting older, and like I remember when my grandmother died, my mom said first thing she said, she said, "I'm next." <laughs> oh no! I know. It's like 
that was on her mind. Is it, you think it's still on her mind? It has to be. You know, how old is I she? I think uh, seventy-two. Oh wow, she looks good. Thanks. Does she dye her hair? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. She di- she's the one that started dyeing my hair because it made her look old. Uh-huh. They have a child with uh, gray hair. Yeah. So I came over to eat eggplant. <laughs> and she, as I'm sitting there, she puts this goopy comb through my hair. And I'm like, what the heck are you doing? Mom? While you're eating eggplant. Yeah, while I'm eating. She goes, just sit there. What were we saying? You know, I think death is a, motivates us. We know we only have so much time on this earth. And it should motivate everybody to be healthy and try to get right with your family and do the right thing for your the next generation. You know, if it wasn't for death, if we lived forever, it would be kind of like... It might um, be a lot worse, I no, think. We'd be terrible. Yeah, we'd be terrible people. Because everybody who, at least in the old... Nothing would matter. In the... Uh, like finishing college or... Mm-hmm. Not that that matters, but like just finishing stuff would not matter, I suppose. I think yeah. about the... Like in the Greek myths, in the Roman myths, like the... Those, the gods that had immortality were, were horrible. They were, they were, you know, almost far. They were exaggerations of humans' fallen nature, you know. Yeah. And I wonder if that was some point that the, the writers were trying to tell. Yeah, it could be. You know, a lot of wise people back then, and it must resonate if it lasts for thousands of years. Those stories. Next quote. Socialist governments traditionally make a financial mess because they always run out of other people's money. I tend to agree with that personally. I'm not a fan of socialism in any form. I know that a lot of people that defend what they call democratic socialism, like you know Bernie Sanders is supporting, they quote the success in the Scandinavian countries like Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and all that. But you know, if you do further research into that, those all have their problems too. And whatever pros and cons they have, I'm not a believer that it will work over here because our system has thrived off capitalism for so long. I mean, if you look at why America is as high up in innovations, why we have such a strong economy, why we are one of the wealthiest countries, it's all based on a free market competition system. But you know, we're not a small hegemony or something like that. Those are small cultures that are all very much alike. We're a huge melting pot of different cultures, different personalities. And in fact, if you look, people that are coming over to this country, everyone's coming to America to succeed and to have this opportunity. They're not going to Denmark and Sweden and Norway right. for these things. Right. Right. You know, and then the suicide rate over in those countries is so high. So that leads you to question, how well is this working? Are these people really that happy mm-hmm. in that situation? What do you say to someone who says like, well, even if it doesn't work, it's morally right to be socialist? Well, I disagree with that too. I feel just the opposite. I don't feel it's morally right to force people to give up part of their money you know, for other people. I guess what bothers me about that, I mean, I can see the point because you want to help out your, the needy, you want to help out your fellow people. At least in America, this is one of the reasons I don't think it worked here, is what we have already gets abused so badly. I, you know, from firsthand experience, I worked at a law office that dealt with a lot of Social Security disability claims, and I can tell you from firsthand experience that the way their system works, they turned down almost everyone initially, whether you really need it or not. However, just about anybody that gets an attorney and files an appeal gets Social Security disability. And there are so many people that I saw get that, the great majority got it, that I know darn well were capable of working. You know, they'd come up with something, and it was always the same, this real vague stuff that couldn't be proven, you know, about, 
you know, well, I can't go out in public. I have a fear of society or something like really? that. Really? Stuff like that, yeah. And it was like this one guy complaining, saying, I wish I could get my disability check so I could buy a Game Boy. You know, I don't believe America's the kind of country that it works. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're for it, you know, and you really think that's great, I, you know, I don't. I hate to say you love it or leave it kind of guy, but I really wonder why people don't just go over there where it's working. Right. You or know, just you practice like it. it as an individual. I think it is morally right to practice as an individual, but I don't think it's morally right for the government to require you to right. do those things. Once again, you know, we're talking morals. That's a very individual okay, decision. Well, Should the government be enforcing right. morals? You know, people I, question that on social issues. You know, when people say, "Well, it's morally right to you know restrict abortion or whatever." People say, well, who are you to choose my morals? You know, so, yeah. I mean, it works both ways. It's, yeah. What I do know is the people that are that wealthy, they're not just, you know, they don't just have this money from just nothing and, you know, hoarding it all to themselves. I mean, they're reinvesting that money into the economy. They're, and I've heard arguments that, oh, the wealthy don't create jobs. Well, you know, I understand the argument that you've got to have customers to support you for, you know, to help you grow. But somebody initially has to put the risk forward and take what money they do have, invest it into creating a business, and take that risk, and then cultivate that, and grow that into something, and honor the customers, and then choose to continue to expand. If you're gonna make a lot of money, you can't just make it by storing it under a mattress. You've got to invest it in something, whether your own business, whether you invest it in some other kind of thing. Like mutual funds. Mutual and funds, whatever. All that does funnel back into the economy. and. To support a growing anything, you do have to hire more people to do it. So I don't agree with the, with the premise behind that most will come at you can have too much money. Yeah. Um, now, as far as practicing yourself, that is the one thing that bothers me about the people that seem to support the, you know, any kind of socialism or democratic socialism, we'll say, because that's what they say they're supporting and not supporting nationalistic socialism. Most of the people I know are not actually donating a portion of their money. Anything. They use the excuse that, well, I can't afford it. But they're college educated, they're, most of them are making decent money. I feel like anybody just about can take 10% of their money and give it to something. Mm -hmm. And then especially when I see find people that are not donating to any kind of actual social cause that helps the hungry or the needy or whatever, but they will give money to a political campaign, mm -hmm. I feel like that's misguided. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, why, isn't your money going to be more effective if you're helping out the cause directly rather than giving it to a politician mm -hmm. you know and I know some people do it they're donating money to say Bernie Sanders for instance mm -hmm. they never really give money or volunteer to do the causes they think that the government should be supporting right. I, I really think if you believe that you should put something into it yourself right that's you know, if you want to talk about morality that's my view of morality Again. Socialist governments traditionally make a financial mess because they always run out of other people's money. I think that's pretty much false on the merits. I mean, you know, I think it's important to differentiate between, oh, traditional socialism when people think of governments taking everybody's stuff and redistributing it versus socialist democracies, which is more prevalent today. Well, what's the difference? If, if you look at Sweden, you have very much a capitalist uh, structure. But their form of democracy does tend to be socialist in nature. So it's more geared towards, um, I guess you would say, the, the common good of the people rather than the common good of the, of the select few. Certain things I think shouldn't be profitable, like 
um, health care. Everybody likes to look at Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and they want to say, oh, it's socialist. But really, I mean, the, the, the plan as passed was the exact plan that was the Republican plan in the 1993 stuff with Clinton. They should be hailing it as their greatest accomplishment, written by the insurance companies, for the insurance companies, personal mandates, everybody has to have it. And we didn't get any for any better options out of the deal. Mm-hmm. In fact, most premiums went up. In my opinion, it is very much a, a state-mandated capitalist program. It mandates that everybody has to buy a product. They didn't expand who you can buy it from. It's still the same players who are you know, making millions off of, uh, off of health care. To me, that's, that's capitalism. But maybe forced. Yeah, essentially forced capitalism. Or, I guess it would be crony capitalism <laughs> if the government is helping out Uh, I mean, single payer was never on the table, which is, which should be when you're talking about something like people's health. We already covered the uninsured through our premiums before. Affordable Care Act was supposed to expand Medicaid and and basically take care of the uninsured. But my personal premiums went up by, it was like $180 a month. They blamed Obamacare, but really it should have went down. If if the uninsured are all, all of a sudden covered... And it's not coming out of my insurance company's pocket. We all should have saved money. What I understand of it, basically the higher income folks have to kick in a little more to help the, the people that have no income. Is that the way you see it as well? With the expansion of, of Medicaid, it was... There, I mean, there's a lot of matching dollars being shelled out by the federal government to states who signed on to, it, to the exchanges, right? And if you're under a certain income, you get a... Rebate or refund, I'm not sure which, from the federal government, or it's reimbursed by the federal government for the premiums. That's not coming out of my pocket. It's not coming out of, we're a self-funded plan. It's the, we're not paying into that. This is this one small aspect. Well, let me you ask know. you this then. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the whole medical industry should be socialized completely, like the government should just come out and like get the, like you said, get the profit out of it? and take the private business part out of it? I do. Okay, let me play devil's advocate. I know that in the UK, uh, I was there in early 2000, and I, one of the people that took care of me, I, I just asked out of curiosity, because you know we always hear you know, rumors or uh, maybe myths about their healthcare system, and I asked, I said, well, so how is it? You know, and, and at least the one host I had, he said, "Well, it's it's not too good in that the the waiting is is what's the problem, like the the wait list." And he says, "I just don't use it," is what he said. And then I later on here in the states, I met a lady who had had cancer, and she was British, and she had moved to America just to get treatment because it was taking too long, and she was afraid she was going to die. So you hear incidences like that, but it does make you wonder. Well, sure, and you see it in the VA healthcare system, right? Looking at the VA, we underfund it. I'm shocked that we can't come up with a way to fund it. We have the facilities, we have ample professional staff, and we already pay the taxes. We should be getting more bang for the buck, I think. Well, that's what the critics say, and they always, you know, it's kind of a cliche thing to say, but they always point to the DMV. You know, if the government can't even run that very efficiently... Well, but that's, but that's a different argument, is whether or not the government can do it efficiently. Well, then why don't we just demand more efficiency out of our government? I mean, because look at, look at all the social programs that started with, the, with Roosevelt's New Deal, right? Nobody's complaining about the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? We like the 40-hour work week. We like to get paid overtime if it's more than that. 
we like our children not to be forced to do slave labor. Yeah. You know, Social Security, people like the point of that, but that was the government's foster program. What went wrong with Social Security? It wasn't that Social Security was a bad idea. It's that Congress kept dipping their fingers in it, but it's still solvent. Yeah, I, I, again, that's what the critics say. Like, the reason why it doesn't work is because the government somehow attracts some of the most inefficient workers. We, we, were, we were talking off recording earlier how we both have worked for you know, government-ran facilities, and, you know, it's very inefficient. And uh, you think, well, why does it, the culture of inefficiency seem to be created at almost every institution that we know of? It's not just limited to governmental institutions. Try calling Verizon Wireless or try calling CenturyLink or, you know, any, any of the big places that you you see a lot of the same inefficiencies. Sure. The difference is they pay their people less, and so they get to care even less than government workers. But we can fire them. We can fire Verizon, I'm saying. Like, if we... Uh, this sucks, I'm we, going... We can fire government workers, too. We don't, but we can. Ah, yeah, see? Maybe if the public was more involved in our in our political structure and the services that are being provided, maybe we could get more out of the federal budget. Well, let me ask you this. It, say you uh, became mayor of a, of a small locality, and... They basically kind of gave you a blank check. Okay, do what you need to do to make the local government efficient because whatever you come up with, and if it works, then we'll do it to the whole nation. Like, what's the first thing you would do? Well, the first thing I would do is evaluate how any public services are delivered. I can tell you where I work right now. I fire most people that I work with, <laughs> okay. with the exception of maybe three. That's unpopular, but at some point, you do have to trim that fat. I mean, why do we have so many... People in the, in the in the government sector are making, you know, a hundred grand, which is three times more than the median income here, to do less work. That doesn't make sense to me. Wouldn't it make more sense to fire some of those workers, trim trim the fat off, but deliver even more public services, more good, but at the same time free up some money for other stuff. Socialist governments traditionally make a financial mess because they always run out of other people's money. Yeah, I hate to pick on a city that's just been through the ringer, but I mean, Detroit is the manifestation of a socialist government as far as in the U.S. goes. You know, to the point to where the city has become so reliant on handouts as far as the population goes that uh, the taxation has caused the exile of people that make the money. They've had to leave to the point to where you know, basic necessities can't be fulfilled. You know, they're having to bulldoze neighborhoods because they can't afford police coverage and fire protection of these neighborhoods anymore. You know, it's, again, it's, it's utopia. It's, it, but, it, they, but they try to spin it, of course. I, I'm not, they, they blame the auto industry for leaving, but, right. but they kind of ran them out, I believe. Yeah, well, they did. I mean, they absolutely ran them out. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that, like, the most American-made vehicle now, I think, is either Nissan or Hyundai. You know, it's, it sounds ludicrous, but uh -huh. it's true. You uh -huh. know, Fords are made in Mexico. I have no idea where GMs uh -huh. uh, are made anymore. There's probably pieced together in Frankenstein uh -huh. from... 60 different countries, mm -hmm. which is, it, I mean, it's a, it's a natural byproduct of uh, international trade being on the level that it is now with everything, mm -hmm. you know, the entire world being intertwined in one way or the other. I think a lot of the uh, problems that they have, like say, I heard a lot of people bashing the people that decided to leave Detroit 
um, saying that they were just heartless and careless because they didn't want to pay the taxes. You know, they looked at it as these people are abandoning people and leaving them to suffer and die in the street from malnourishment because they're not willing to give up 50% of their income to uh, provide for people that have less. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I understand that, you know, they have good intentions, but at the same time, when they are confronted with the realization that socialist doctrine dictates that, you know, if you have so much that you are obligated to give a certain amount, it just it can't hold up for people that, at the same time, whatever be their motives, whatever be their religion, are trying to live the American dream and mm-hmm. to build a legacy and to make their family... Well, as, it's hard to uh, employ people if you're being taxed at such a high that, rate. That, yeah, absolutely. And, and the same thing with uh, minimum wage. Hence unemployment. Yeah. Right. Socialist governments traditionally make a financial mess because they always run out of other people's money. You know, I saw the documentary on the farm. Have you seen that? The farm? The, the Tennessee farm? The Tennessee farm. Oh, no. I didn't know that. Um, it's a really brilliantly um, constructed documentary. And even though that was a socialist experiment, uh-huh. everybody shares and shares alike, they had to change their model because they were running out of money. Really? Yeah. So for people listening, the mm-hmm. farm is a, a like hippie collective kind of place. In the late 60s, there was, um, there was an organizer, a, a teacher in San Francisco, who had this class, and the class that basically took their buses on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the, the quotes in the movies, like, the hippies are coming, the hippies are coming, these were the hippies. Uh-huh. And so they went around the country. They were actually invited by church leaders to mm-hmm. come speak the gospel of peacefulness, of pacifism, because it was when the riots were happening, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody was upset about the Vietnam War. And so they did this tour for a year. They went on the buses and they came back to San Francisco. And by then, San Francisco had become like a drug-addled, horrible Mm -hmm. place to live, and they couldn't think about staying there. So they ended up um, in Hohenwald, Tennessee, of all places. And they worked as sort of a commune. They were well known for their midwifery um, mm-hmm. skills. People could come and have their babies naturally there. They were educated. They were um, they had to educate themselves about a lot of things. Right. Um, farming, I would think. Farming, yeah, absolutely. And there was a guy in Honewald who donated the land. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they paid for it. Mm-hmm. It was a gift. Okay. Um, again, that comes back to your quote. Okay. You know, right. like somebody had to to start that and give them a place to literally settle down. Mm-hmm. They learned how to farm, they learned agriculture, they learned midwifery, they learned about animals, all mm-hmm. of that. People would leave their babies there. So, you know, if somebody had a, a kid out of wedlock or mixed race Oh, really? Child, oh, wow. And so pretty much all the households there had at least one child that d- did not biologically belong to them. Oh. I thought that's nice. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that that had occurred, but you know, families raising babies, and it really didn't matter okay. which babies. But again, they got to a point where people were coming in thinking they were just going to like hang out, smoke weed, and there was actually a no drug policy. That's killing my buzz, man. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so in the, I think it was in the early '80s, you know, the elders got together and said, "This is not a sustainable model." We want it to be, but there was no money coming in. Mm-hmm. And so instead of doing work, I think, like by shared hours, people were encouraged to go educate themselves, 
have jobs outside the community, learn to be doctors, learn to be you know leaders, mm-hmm. um, develop skills, and then come back and actually pay to live on okay. property which they were never going to own. So you still have that socialist component, but the money model has changed. In my head, I am a socialist. I want everybody to have the opportunities. I want everybody to have healthcare. I want everybody to be fed. I want everybody to have a good education. As somebody who doesn't have children and now has discretionary income, mostly because I don't have children, you know, like there's money there, I look for ways to help mostly individuals, Mm -hmm. but sometimes causes, because I not only can I, but I feel like it's my responsibility too. When my brother had his first kid, he said, you know, your responsibility as an adult in, in the universe is to put good back into the world. Right. When you have a child, you do that in a very specific way. You teach that child how to be good so that they can carry on. When you don't have children, you have to find another way to better the environment, to better the community, to better the the love and the light and all of that. And so, Well, let me ask you this, because mm-hmm. some say, well, we have to force socialism on, on others because not everybody's going to be like you mm-hmm. and give your money freely. Mm-hmm. They'll just keep it or spend yeah. it on what they want. Do you feel that, that we have... That, that it we, has to be forced? Mm. Nope. Okay. I don't. So you're talking more of an individual socialism? <sighs> Yeah, because I'm just one person. I can't push a community. I can show by example. This is how I act in the world. These are my beliefs. Mm -hmm. And instead of just talking about it, here are the actions that I take to do. Which is hard because I'm also a private person and I don't necessarily want people to know that, yes, we donate money to this person and we give money to this cause. And when this guy had a hard time, I was like, well, right. come sleep on my couch, you know, like, and those acts are not things that we, we project mm-hmm. as, hey, look what I did. You should do this too. But hopefully the people that I have touched will be able to go out and also do the same and also mm-hmm. do the same. And so building socialism, that idea, one person at a time, mm-hmm. two people at a time. I think what you're saying is, is actually works and more, is wonderful. A lot of people say that we have to force. Okay, so for example, some people make too much money. Mm-hmm. That's the argument. And they're being greedy and we got to uh, equalize things. Or, or uh, sure. My question for the billionaires is how much do you need? How much mm-hmm. do you spend? Okay. What are you spending on? Right. And are you generating income for other people? Well, I think... Uh, okay, now I'm just injecting myself into okay, it. Okay. But I think that's why socialism doesn't work mm-hmm. is because it often has to get it from somewhere and it often takes the money from entrepreneurs and like, pe- people that create really, things. How much money do you need? Right. How much money will make you happy? There's some buzz number like people who make like seventy, seventy thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. are generally their health care is taken care of, they have good dental, mm-hmm. they're driving cars that aren't falling apart, right. they can buy fresh foods, right. you know, like that's a comfortable number for middle class America, which we don't have anymore. But as someone who has has gone from having nothing to mm-hmm. having abundance in a short amount of time, I want to share that abundance. So you think there should be a cap? No, I don't think there should be any rules. Okay. I don't think there should be any rules. I think... Um, if you were just to speak to them one-on-one, you would say that, you're saying? Yeah. If I were okay. to talk to a billionaire and be like, mm-hmm. how are you helping? 
Mm-hmm. What does hoarding your money do mm-hmm. for anybody? How much money do you need? Do you even know how much money it takes to sustain your lifestyle? Mm-hmm. If you've got 14 empty houses, mm-hmm. does that make you happier than having 10 empty houses right. or three empty houses? Like, what is it that you need and mm-hmm. what is it that you think you should have? Mm-hmm. And find the discrepancy in there. I know everybody's got dreams of like lottery winnings and what you would do. <laughs> yeah. Right? And everybody's like, oh, I would go buy this house, I would go travel, that would my lottery dream is is about how helping artists specifically can i build a building where they can live and work or work and sell how do i make that as that's the only thing that i would like on my bucket list of because you're content otherwise i am i'm more than content i have abundance and i know it it's embarrassing sometimes because I am so freaking happy. Yeah, don't be embarrassed because I, I knew you when you were dirt poor. Right. <laughs> um, I don't want for anything. You know, I have good friends. I have a great spouse. I have time mm-hmm. is my biggest resource mm-hmm. that you and I can sit in the middle of the day and, and, just, be on my silly and, podcast. and just talk. Yeah. I want everybody to enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes me a socialist. I want everybody mm-hmm. to go to sleep easy at night. You know, but you would never force it on someone else. No. I don't understand how you could even think that that's possible. It's like forcing religion or forcing philosophy or forcing... You just Anytime you force something, mm-hmm. you're going to get pushback. Be enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Show the benefits. Mm-hmm. Show the drawbacks. Be honest. And live your life accordingly. And now the source of the quotes. After his release from jail for civil disobedience not paying his taxes he felt was going to keep slavery legally protected, the children of Concord had brightened Henry's mood by urging him to join a huckleberry hunt. Huckleberrying was one of Henry's value pastimes, and his skill at locating fruit-laden bushes made him a favorite with children. And should a child stumble spilling berries, Henry would kneel by the weeping child and explain that if children did not stumble, then berries would never scatter and grow into new bushes. It's from a story related about Henry David Thoreau, author, poet, philosopher, abolitionist, and historian, best known for his book Walden, which was an account of his attempt to live a bare and simple existence for a little over two years. Next quote. Julio Antonio resisted against the Baptista regime and then later protested Castro's tyranny. During a recess for his trial, Antonio returned to his cell and asked one of his cellmates, quote, do me a favor, open that can of pears you've been saving and give me a glass of milk. That's the last thing I'll ever eat since tonight I'll be far away from here, close to God, unquote. At 2 p.m. he was led away and at 9 p.m. that night the sound of a motor was heard. Total silence fell. It was the truck carrying the coffin for the corpse. Before they tied Antonio to the wooden stake, he shook hands with each one of the soldiers in the firing squad and told them that he forgave them. It's from the book entitled Against All Hope, an account by Cuban political prisoner Armando Valadares. Valadares was imprisoned and tortured for 22 years for simply refusing to post I'm with Fidel sign on his work desk. After mounting international pressure, the Cuban government released Valadares in 1982, after which he was appointed by President Reagan to serve as the United States Ambassador to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, and continues to this day to speak out about Cuba's human rights abuses. Next quote. 
Socialist governments traditionally make a financial mess because they always run out of other people's money was from Margaret Thatcher, originally a research chemist before she got into politics, ultimately becoming the longest serving Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during the 20th century. Whew, doggies, that was a heavy podcast, but I really want to thank all my guests who came on and braved the storm. And if you like this kind of banter, this is episode 12 of Trying to Hurt Cats, so that means there's 11 more episodes before this that you can check out. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner, Back with the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Bye.